Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yevamot, daf Zion, page seven. So the Gemara, you know, continues to discuss the logic behind these exact cases to try to figure out, you know, when you have a a counterexample to the, let's say again, right? We want to make sure that we have a case that where the positive commandment overrides the negative commandment that carries a, a punishment of karet. And then, you know, somewhere in the middle, I guess, of Amar Aleph, Hadar Amar, the Tana, takes it back and says, Amar damrina da'ati asi v'dachi lotase, lotase greda, lotase sheish bukarit, mishmait le dadachi. He says, why do you even have to prove this, right? Meaning, why do you even read, need to establish this as a case that a positive commandment will override a negative commandment that has a punishment of karet, hadar amar. So then he says, you know, can't we say, atu ase doche et lotase, lav lotase chamor ase Can't we say that we're talking about a positive commandment that can override a negative commandment, but the, with the ne- if the negative commandment is more stringent than the positive commandment, then that won't happen, right? Meaning, that we don't have to worry that this is even a thing to prove. And so then the, you know, that's that would be like the the first way to look at it. And then the concern seems to be, right, that what happens if the court comes to, you know, punish a love, the punishment for a love is whipping, right? Lashes, um, as opposed to karate. And then you don't have to worry in the same way about this this same conundrum that's been plaguing us for a couple of pages here now. Mali Zuto, Mali Raba. The Gemara says, what's the difference if we're talking about a minor stringency and what's the difference if, if it's a major stringency? Meaning once the once we have a principle that says that a positive man a positive commandment can override a, a negative commandment, then what's the difference? asks the Gemara, right? What's the difference if it's a, a very serious prohibition or a lenient prohibition? Right? Why why does the punishment side of things make a difference, right? That's the first thing is, well, don't worry about this because you're talking about a, a much more serious punishment. So it doesn't override that kind of negative commandment. And then the Gemara says, well, what difference does it make how stringent it is, right? How strong of a negative commandment it is. Once you establish that the positive commandment can override a negative commandment, that should be enough. And then the Gemara says, Talmud Lamar, lo tivaru, meaning referring back to our verse of not igniting a flame, right? It says, the Gemara says that, it has not found uh, any way to prove the idea that there is, in fact, a positive commandment that would override the negative commandment that has current. So then the Gemara says, let's try something else. Meaning, because all of this is not really about Lotevaru, it's not really about these other examples that we've seen about the temple and the Karban and so on. We're talking about the issue of Yibum and the fact that we've got this word Aleha, right? Um, which seems to teach that the obligation of Yubum does not override the prohibition with regard to everybody, or, or whatever woman that might have had, might have been an, uh, a prohibition, a prohibited relationship, right? Illicit sexual relations. So why do we need that phrase of Aleha if we, right? This is the question. If that phrase teaches the Yibum doesn't override the negative commandment, then 
What are we like? What are we doing here? So let's see what it says inside. So the verse says, actually, we do need that phrase. And we've talked about this kind of what they call the hermeneutical principles of der- deriving halacha. We've talked about this in the past, um, long ago and more recently. And I feel like each time <coughs> this particular one comes up, I feel like we have to plug it through again very carefully, right? Once we're talking about what's called klalu pratu klal, we're talking about a general statement, which then teaches us something about the uh, the specific statement, and then we, again, extrapolate from it to the general statement. So here we go. It says, let's see, the phrase is, the the phrasing of Alea is necessary, right? Because you might have thought, let's say, the case the case of Eishat Ach, meaning the prohibition of a man taking his brother's wife, marrying his brother's wife, which is the normal prohibition, except for the case where Yibum kicks in. So you might think that that case would be treated in this way that because it's included in the generalization and then you you derive let's say let's again let me just see if i can say this well once we have a general principle we want to say from that general principle we're going to learn a specific case the specific case then teaches not just about itself but about the entire generalization what does that mean it means that if the if the ach is permitted in the case of Yibum, right, meaning the the man can marry his brother's widow, which normally would be prohibited, then you can, what we're going to extrapolate that to take it further and say that um, that um, I just want to say this right, and I'm, feel, and I'm afraid I'm not going to, that the other cases are going to be prohibited. Meaning, it only teaches us the one exception, and it doesn't give us the leeway to say that all these other illicit sexual relations would be permitted. Have I have I phrased that well enough? Yes, I think you did. That that's a good explanation. Okay, so what they're doing is we can call this, you know, in a fancy way, we can call this inductive reasoning, right? Meaning that's what they're they're inferring from the one case to apply it to the other case, but instead of applying it, they're applying the opposite, really, because the because the the claw is you can't do this. And then we've got a prat that says you can do this. And then the, but it's only for that one case. So I think what's interesting here is, you know, just how many different sort of methods of Midrash Halakha we've sort of been going through since this Masach had started. And I think it makes sense because this is a very... Yibum is essentially having to allow something that would normally be prohibited. And so how that get learned out and paying very specific attention to the words that are used in the psukim that, dis- that discuss Yibum is very important to Chazal. So I think we're seeing that as they try to apply sort of principle after principle to try to figure out what is actually the Mahalik, like what's actually the, the method of how all of this is supposed to be learned out. Yeah, I think I want to correct something that I've said, and I, I have no shame in this, right? The, if you keep reading the Gemara, it says, it says basically that the 
the what I tried to say, which is the conclusion in the end, is not the conclusion yet here. At this point in the Gemara, the claim is that because we have this exclusion from the general principle of everybody being prohibited, or because we're going to permit Eshet Ach, the, the brother's wife, in the case of Yibum, then we're going to apply that to everybody and say that, look at that, all those women who normally would be prohibited would be accepted, would be allowed. And then we still have to, and then the Gemara says like, okay, but we're, you know, it's still going to fum for around for a while um, to get to the logic that says, no, not, not all those other people, just this one. Um, so that we do get there if in, in eventually, but what I wanted to establish here was exactly what you're saying here, Dana, that we have this manner of Midrash Halakha, meaning it's, it's, I would say it's even stronger than Midrash Halakha, right? It's the Tlalei Psak. These are the rules of determining Halakha that where we explicitly say, Klal, we have a generalization that we then, you know, kind of excludes a case from that. And we're going to presume that we can get back to it to make a broader generalization about the Klal again, except for, and that is exactly what the Gemara says at this point, except for then as it goes on, it's going to reject that. So I'm going to move on to another interesting case that appears here. And um, what they're trying to describe is uh, sort of, uh, again, this whole discussion about Yibum and why there's a specific mention about the wife's sister, right? And so one of the, you know, discussions they have here is that using this cloud prop cloud and how this all goes, that maybe what we actually would say is that if the lab, if the prohibition over the brother's wife is prohibited through Yibun, maybe awful the wife's sister should also uh, should also be uh, lifted. And so they bring a proof of how this could possibly uh, want to spend some time discussing. How do we know that we say this principle of since one prohibition is lifted, another prohibition is lifted? And so here's the brisa with the case. Titania. Mitzor shachal shmini shaloh be'erah fa'pesach. This is a very unusual case. You have a mitzora, right, whose eighth day of purification actually occurs on Erev Pesach. So it's Yudzal Nisan. V'ra'ah keri bo'bayom. And also on that same day, he has a seminal omission. So what this means is, is that he's actually not allowed to go to the Temple Mount to basically finish up the purification process uh, that he needs, uh, that he would need to do. Um, and so just to give a little bit of background here, right? So one of the things that a mitzorah is not allowed to do while they have sorat, right? Which again, we badly translate into English as leprosy is that they're sort of uh, not allowed to be part of the camp. This is in, in Vayikra in, in chapter 13, right? So we say that there's, you know, the machana shechina, the machana levia, and the machana yisrael. There's sort of these three parts of the camp, the camp of the Shechina, the, the Levi camp, and the Israelite camp. So the camp of the Shechina was sort of at the middle, then it's surrounded by the Levi camp, and then the Israelite camp surrounds that. Once we get into Eretz Yisrael, right, the temple and its courtyard is basically considered the Machane Shechina, uh, is considered the Machane Levia, and then the city of Jerusalem is basically considered the Machane Yisrael. And so therefore, the, the Mitzorah is basically not allowed to be in any of those camps, right? Basically has to stay outside of Yerushalayim, okay? And, you know, once the Tzorah gets better, then the Mitzorah basically begins this period of seven days of waiting. 
And at that point, during those seven days of waiting, he's allowed to actually go into um, into Yerushalayim itself, goes into the mikvah on the seventh day, and on the eighth day brings, uh, you know, the three korbanos that they have to bring, a chatas and ola and asha, and then is basically free of their tumah. But part of what that is, is, is that you take the blood of the asham and it's dabbed basically like you put a little bit of blood on the mitzvah's right ear, thumb, and big toe. Okay, so very interesting uh, type of ritual uh, that was done there. And then on the eighth day, prior to bringing all of these things, that's this category that we've talked before, muhsar kippur, right? Is like lacking, literally means lacking atonement. And at this point, once they're muhsar kippur, meaning they've completed the seventh day, so they've already been allowed to enter uh, during the seven days, they can go into Yerushalayim, into the, you know, the Machana Yisrael, right? Now they've gone to the mikvah. So on the eighth day, they can go into the Machana. Uh, they can go basically into the Machana Livia. They can basically be on the Temple Mount, but it's they're not allowed still to go into the actual Machana Shechina. And that's actually, you would be punished uh, actually by for doing that. And you can only go into the Machanesh Shechina after all these Karbanot are brought and the blood is dabbed. And then basically they're completely, there's no restrictions anymore on the Mitzorah itself. So part of what needs to be understood here is sort of the layout of the Beit HaMikdash itself. And that essentially you had sort of the woman's courtyard and the gate separating the woman's courtyard from the regular courtyard, which is now, you know, Machanesh Shechina, is this gate of Shar uh, Nikinor. And essentially, Shar Nikinor, like that gate itself, was still considered to be part of the Machana Livia. And the Mitzor would basically sort of stand there, okay, underneath that gate. And, um, and uh, he would, you know, and, and would sort of put his limbs inside, right? And then, uh, you know, and then the coin would basically come and, and dab, uh, and dab, uh, uh, you know, and then would dab the, would, would dab the blood. So there's a whole interesting about where you can extend the, the limbs to and how exactly uh, this would work. But the issue is, is that in order to do this part, what is he? He has to be in the Machane Livia. He has to be in the, this middle camp. However, if you're a Balkari, if you're somebody who had a seminal omission, right, you actually are also forbidden from going into the Machane Livia. And so therefore, we have this issue, right? He can't actually go to the mikvah until that night. And so the question basically becomes, it's the eighth day to complete everything that he needs to do in order to no longer be considered in the category of a Mitzorah. Part of this involves getting into the Machane Leviyah to get this final dabbing, right? So then he can enter the Machane But now he has this additional restriction on him, which is being a Balkari, right? And cannot even go into the Manachane Leviyah. Now, normally we'd say, okay, so you wait an extra day. Who actually cares? You go to the mikvah the night of the eight night the eighth day, and then you'll finish this all up on the ninth day. The problem is, is that he also needs to bring a Korban Pesach. <laughs> and if he can't somehow figure out how to become Tameh, Tahor, excuse me, from all of these things, he's going to miss bringing his Korban Pesach. So it's really, again, I know we would consider this to be, uh, I wouldn't consider this to be boundary pushing, because I actually think the same way that Anne, we talked about a case yesterday that we thought was like, you know, very specific, the one about executing on Shabbat, I actually think this could possibly happen and actually was practical, sort of when you have all these different halachot sort of align in the same way and you have to figure out how are you going to do all of these things. So that's really what the question is here. 
And so, um, so basically, what do they say, right? So again, so the eighth day falls on the uh, and he sees on that day that he already saw, you know, he had the seminal uh, uh, discharge. So now he's not allowed to go to the complete the process, the Tavau, but he, you know, goes to the mikvah uh, on the same day. So in other words, he can go to the mikvah that same day, but he's considered basically a tavul, you know, meaning he's somewhat purified, but he still has some tuma, and he's still not allowed to go onto the Temple Mount. Uh, you know, he can't even go to the Machanelavia until actual nightfall. So what happens? Amru chachamim, even though any other tabul yom, right, um, uh, is not allowed, would be allowed to enter the Temple Mount, zen nichnas. We're going to allow for this special case that actually he is allowed. So in other words, as long as he's gone to the mikvah, even though technically he would normally have to wait till the end of the day to totally remove his status as a Valkyrie, right, as having the seminal omission, we're going to allow for him to go to the Temple Mount earlier so that he can finish the purification process of the Mitzorah. Because it's preferable, right? That a positive commandment that has the penalty of Karit, meaning remember, if you don't do the Korban Pesach, you actually get Karit. There's only two positive commandments that that's true of, right? Korban Pesach and Brit Milah. And it overrides a positive commandment that you do not get Karit from. And what's that positive commandment? That's the commandment that a, a Tavul basically not allowed to go to the temple mat. And so we basically see uh, how this relates to Yibam is essentially that we see that sort of two prohibitions uh, are, are lifted um, at that time. Now, uh, Rabbi Yochanan the, goes on to actually say he disagrees with this and, and, and there's a whole interesting uh, discussion that follows. But I really just wanted to go through this particular interesting case of the Mitzorah who's a Balkari on Erev Pesach. And and I think this really shows a beautiful intricacy of halakha, right? Where you sort of have layers upon layers of different commandments that take place at the same time. And how does halakha actually try to uh, work it through? And I think here what's interesting is like the chachamim, like he can go in, like they don't even bother to try to figure it out textually. It's just there's sort of a logic here. That's basically saying, like, we can't prevent this person from doing it. He's not going to be able to fulfill a mitzvah that he will get kares for, right? Not bringing the korban Pesach. And so we're just going to have to allow something that normally we wouldn't allow. And so there's a flexibility here with halacha that I think we don't often give chazal credit for. Like, very often feel that the halacha of the Gemara is inflexible. And I found this to have a tremendous amount of flexibility. So I think I like the flexibility. I want to point out again, though, what struck me here, I think, is that this is Chazal being very practical about something that was not like happening in their midst, right? Because there wasn't a Korban and they weren't going to be Metahir the Mitzorah. And I feel like, but they talk about it in such a direct, practical way that, you know, whether that's a matter of preparation for the future that they believe will be coming or because this is the best way to talk about Halacha, you know, I, I we could quibble about that, but I, I just it, it it makes it clear how live the practicality of this side of things was for them, you know, which we keep saying, 
oh, we this is not, you know, the our experience, especially the two Mandara stuff. And it wasn't theirs either, but they were they were really, you know, involved with making sure that they they knew exactly what to do. Right. So I think that's also a super key point. This was not practical for the Mishnah, for the Tanayim, nor practical for the Gemara, for the Amorayim. Um, and it's interesting how they really try to sort of sort this out. Uh, I'll add another layer, which is, you know, we sometimes learn that there did seem to be like a little bit of a, a loss. Like they sometimes were like, we're not really sure what the halacha is. And you got the sense that that may have actually been because they haven't done these halacha for so long. Here, there's like, yes, there's a, there seems to be like a certain self-assuredness in this price. Like the Chacham just say, no, of course he's going to go. He's got to be able to finish it, participate in the Korban Pesach. So this didn't seem to be a halacha that necessarily got lost or they were unsure. There's, there's a self-assuredness in how they decide this. That's our DOPS discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.